Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. And if you're a multifamily investor, active passive, or you've been in the industry, well, this is the YouTube show and podcast that was designed just for you. We're breaking down all the latest data, research reports, articles, and throwing out some original commentary covering the multifamily industry, housing, and the economy. As is every week, it is so important to pay attention to how things are moving. This week is completely different from last week as it was a couple weeks ago. So we've got stories related to the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell speaking in front of the Senate Finance Committee recently. Um, new ADP employment numbers have come out. Um, we also have reports from CBRE and um, Realtor.com on the U.S. housing supply and new supply coming online this year. I mean, if you haven't heard, we have more housing coming online this year than we have in years. So something really important to pay attention to. We also have a really fascinating new survey and report um, that Camden Well just put out, just sent to us. Since I participated in the survey, we got it a little bit early. Um, this is going into what the smart or at least the deep pocket money, what they're, how they're seeing investments going forward, specifically in private, re, private equity and real assets. So a lot of insights of where those high net worth, indivi high net worth individuals, family offices and institutions, how they are looking at investing into alternatives going forward. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to the Great Capital YouTube channel so you can stay up to date on all the next latest episodes. All right, let's get into it. All right, welcome back to the Gray Report. Thank you again. Matt Bosnagel, Director of Communications and Marketing here at Great Capital, joins us once again in the co-host seat. Matt, how's Hello. your week going? It's going going pretty well. Um, it's going by so fast. It seems like I know. I can't. I can't believe. It. I mean, it's Thursday. We usually record on Wednesday. Just time. Time flies. Yeah. It's incredible. I'm closing out to the end of the week, and um, I'd say again, every couple of weeks things change. I mean, if not yeah. daily or weekly, but it's you know, always something. <laughs> I, I I had I had lunch today, Matt, with um some some lenders, and you know we were talking. Um, we'd gotten together with that, the same folks. Um at NMHC back in Las Vegas at uh, the end of January. And just through the conversations in the tone from um, end of January to now just the beginning of March, not, I mean, like we're talking a month, month, yeah. you know, six weeks maybe. And the tone has already changed. And I would say um, not that everyone has changed their tone, but I would say some of the folks um, on the, maybe the investment sales side, the brokers and some other lenders conversation has now shifted from, well, at the end of this year, rates are going to be lower. You know, the buyers are going to come back and it's just going to be roses. Mm -hmm. You know, all is going to be good at the end of the year to now saying, yeah, that's not going to be the case. And mm -hmm. people talking much more about, um, you know, how, how they save their deals rather than, oh no, I'm going to still be able to get a big cash out refinance here in the next, you know, six months or so. Um, we've been talking about this and warning about what people are talking about now for really the last year, man. I mean, it was March when we kind of, we took a, we kind of, we shifted our stance. Um, but it, it's interesting now, um, has, seeing some of these other folks that are now just kind of coming to terms with reality. I keep thinking about what you, you talked about yesterday, the, you know, multifamily is a slow boat, um, to move, to react to some of these things. I think a lot of people are waiting until the very last chance until there are no alternatives available, but I keep, what I keep coming back to is this idea of like, for yeah, well, you could be forward thinking, 
when is there going to be some switch that flips and people are like, oh, I got to get ahead of this. And the, is there going to be a realization or is everyone just going to collectively wait until the last possible moment? I, I think people are starting to, I think people are realizing that they need to start moving now. All, all, obviously depends on their situation and, and, yeah. and, and timing on their assets. But um, I think that the idea though, that you're going to have an opportunity to um, sit out and wait till next year and, and that idea is going away. I think people are now saying, well, yeah, maybe in, in three to five years, things are going to be looking great. Um, mm-hmm. But not as if you have to do something within the next 12 months, 12 to 18 months, you might want to do it sooner rather than later. And, yeah. and, and, and even though that like locking in a fixed rate now, like doesn't seem that exciting because you know, you're locking in the sixes maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're on a floating rate, I mean, or a bridge loan or something, you could be paying in the 8% range. And, and that's, what's so kind of interesting right now is, okay. If people thought they could float it for, for the next year, if they had that calculation at the end of January, and then there could be, you know, if all it takes is one more other interpretation, suddenly you're in a worse spot. You yeah. need to sell in 12 months and then Suddenly, and then you think, well, might as well sell now. So you're going from two years of safety to maybe two months to sale um, based on your interpreter. And it doesn't have to be that different of an interpretation. There's seen words. A lot of people, I think, are bouncing on the edge of a knife. And uh, and yeah. see, I think some people are going to fall into, um, you know, some distressed sales. Yeah, I, I think I, th- I think so. Now, there's a lot of money floating around, a lot of rescue. Everyone's talking yeah. about rescue capital. What's going to be palatable? What's not going to be palatable? Um, but yeah, there's going to be some people in some not great situations. And what I keep coming back to is what, it, what what's going to be exposed and what, what's being exposed already is, um, those who structured their deals and who took on significantly more risk than others. And it seemed like there wasn't that big of a difference of, you know, floating rate, fixed rate. And there was a period. As soon as a year ago, two years ago, people were saying, you know, why would you go fixed rate? That's so that, you know, you're leaving so much money, money on the table. There's high prepayment penalties, which is true. So you might not be able to exit as, as quickly as you thought. The rates were lower on the, the floating rate stuff. You know, the caps weren't that expensive. It was, it was like the savvy and smart thing to do. You could get a little higher IRR. Um, but we're now we're seeing how that rate, how that re- extra return is directly translating to higher degree of risk and where it seemed like just a little bit more risk for a decent amount of return. Now it's like a decent amount of more return or none actually. Yeah. Um, and you're taking on, you've taken on so much more risk and now your asset is actually at risk and where the conversations are moving from how do I crank out a good multiple? How do I get a good cash out refinance to how do I preserve capital? How do I preserve the asset? And those conversations should have taken place when the business plan was put together. Yeah. How, we're going to go forward on this. Okay. What, what if some worst case scenarios, how, what, what if those come true? What if those things happen? How does this asset um, respond? And what can we do going into the deal that's going to set us up so we're we don't have our back against the wall. Yeah. Because there are a lot of groups that are going to, that are, their back is approaching the wall. And only because the decisions that they made in the short term that seemed like they were the savvy fight, the savvy investment decisions, risk management was not really being done. And there are others, though, 
they have long-term fixed debt that are sleeping very well at night. If you've got a, if you've got a more than a three-year time horizon, I think you're good. If you got five years, you don't have a whole lot yeah. to work out. Ten years, good. Yeah. I, well, and that's I think we talked about that. You know, whether it was last week, or the week before, us how you know time time is risk, and the more time you have, the the less risk you are that that period is going to be characterized by any single interest rate regime. And you'd like to think that it evens out unless it's, you know, something crazy like yeah. what was in the eighties. But, uh, I, I, all signs are pointed to this being finite, but if you have such a limited time horizon, then a small change in the interest rate could really send you, could really send things into the negative and, and, um, enforce a very dramatic decision. Maybe it's yeah. to sell. Because it's not, it's not just interest rates, Matt. As we've talked about, you've got your interest rates, it's moved up. So if you're on a floating rate loan, your your debt service has doubled or tripled depending on how you finance it. But that's only one, what's one factor? You've also had cap rates are going up. They have to because ca- yeah. financing rates are going up. So cap rates are going up. Where people are now looking at, you know, the five and a half, six, six caps are where I need to be instead of threes and fours. So you've yeah. got your valuation multiple um, it has depressed the actual valuations of the assets, but on your income, which the values that how the assets are actually valued is how much cash is throwing off. What's your net operating income? You've had net operating income declines. You've had rent declines. You had negative rent growth. You've had expenses going up. So it's simple math, numerator, denominator. You know, your value is your net operating income divided by your cap rate. Well, Mm -hmm. your net operating income has gone down. Your cap rate's gone up. That mean your value has gone down significantly. So how it's canceling. Yeah. And I think that I think you mentioned this actually. Um, you talked about apartment supply when you know, and this is a little bit more of, of a teaser. But for certain markets, it, the apartment supply is going to go up incredibly, and in other markets, it's not. And it's easy to find. And it's easy to find which ones there. You know, let's let's say Phoenix, for instance, has a lot of new supply. What if you had a floating rate loan on on a purchase at the wrong time? in the Phoenix market where you're getting a lot of supply, that's like the odds are, that doesn't eliminate every single person. There are plenty of people that probably did that and are probably fa- facing this situation. Um, and there are also folks who all. bought something in 2019 who put a, you know, a fixed rate, fixed rate loan on it. That's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the f- most low fours and they're doing great because they've had great rent growth over yeah. the last couple of years. The declines don't, you know, wipe out all the rent growth. They still have great growth and they've got fixed debt. And they're they're doing great. Yeah, not that worry about. Very good point. It, it's complete, totally about execution. Now, someone could have bought that same asset in the same year and have had a floating and have used a floating rate loan on it, and they felt really smart the first couple of years. Maybe they sold it in twenty twenty one. Maybe they refinanced it. Maybe they're holding on to it, but now their their caps are being readjusted. They have to, you know, they're they're getting ready to buy a new cap. Um, if they don't already have to buy a new cap in their escrows, now they're still going to be in a better spot, but um they are paying much more in interest um, than they thought relative to the fixed rate borrower than they thought they would have been uh, back in 2019. Yeah. Um, it's all risk and reward. You said time, you know, time, you can reduce your risk. It also reduces the return. Yeah. Um, but it's how you, it's can't separate the two things of risk and return. And the idea of risk management right now is so important. And we talked about this, Matt, again, a year ago saying there have been new areas of risk that have been introduced to the market, new factors 
that have there's there are these areas of just of exponential risk and if you're not looking at the idea that we were last year of interest rates are moving like the dot we were looking at the dot plot we're, look, we're listening to everything the fed is mm-hmm. saying and like we like this is where we're going they they communicated it very specifically yeah. um well, that's actually Less, a good lead in. <laughs> yeah. Why, why, why not? If you want to. <laughs> so now. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And, and, and so like the federal reserve that they're very, they're, they're committed. Like they are committed. Mm-hmm. Part of it is just, it's saving face from them being too slow to react. Um, keeping monetary policy way too loose for too long. Um, and now they're doing whatever they can to try to bring inflation in check. And you got to get out of the way of the fed and, the same people are saying don't fight the Fed back in 2021 were still the same people that were essentially going the opposite direction of the Fed all last year and putting more floating rate debt on it and bridge debt um, that's going to become expiring. Some at the end of this year, a big end, but then you know, 2024 um, is going to be an interesting period as well, Matt. So again, it's not just like yeah. this year. It, we, we've got some times again, like End of 21, a lot of deals close at the end of 21, incredible amount of volume, two-year bridge loan. You know, where does that, where does that put us? You know, it, it puts us, you know, throughout 2024. So, yeah, that's, uh, and, and a lot of the projections were, were that 2024 is going to be the rough point. Even actually some of the government's own projections and some of their worst case scenarios at, uh, 2024 was where they're there was a little bit of a shakeup. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when, you know, when you're talking about communicating it, I think that there's always a benefit of being, of seeming like more hawkish from the Fed. They don't really stand again that much by, by like, by seeming more dovish, by telling people, oh, no, 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 don't worry about interest rates. They are consistent in their message in that. Well, especially that, if you want to co- control inflation, you know, yeah, the last yeah. thing I want to do is be like, hey, you know, all, all is good. It, it, you don't have to worry about it. You know, we're, go out and spend some more, go buy some more things. That's, yeah. that's, that's not good. So let, let's pivot. Let's talk about uh, yeah. this. Powell was up on Capitol Hill. He was answering senators' questions. Um, it, it's one of the one of the big piece of monetary policy people are waiting for just to get a little bit of insight. And it, since um, we've had all this new data from um, from employment from the BLS, but we've also just gotten a new ADP report, which is not government report, private market, but so it's a little bit different metric, um, but the economy is still running hot now. We've got people are still finding jobs. We're hiring yeah. way more than we're firing. And, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren, you know, kind of got on Jerome Powell, basically calling him out for saying that, you know, they are trying to create unemployment and they're like, you're trying to basically have 2 million Americans lose their job. What do you say to those 2 million Americans? His response was, well, what do you say to everybody else? What do you say to the other, you know, what, 209 290-some million or however many people live in the United States these day, days who are suffering from inflation, you know, this hidden tax. What do you say, you know, what do you say to that, well, um, you know, on a, on a daily yeah. basis? You say things are going to be more expensive. We want these jobs. That's, that's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, uh, can say, you can say that. You, 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 you can say that, but. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not Jerome Powell. And, and my point and the whole thing about communication is, you know, Powell's remarks are, there's so only like billions of trillions of dollars that are listening for the smallest, subtle, subtlest signal that interest rates might increase or decrease, and and hearings, and you know, uh, pay, you know, appearances on a panel like like Jay Powell made in front of Congress this week. They are, um, it it's not like a ritual, but it's definitely carefully measured and carefully crafted. He doesn't want to 
seem like he's going too strong or too too soft, but there is still a little bit of things that are open to interpretation. If Powell didn't open his mouth, then maybe we wouldn't have the headlines that said, you know, uh, stock signals are down after he after he has said that, you know, maybe it's running a little too hot. Um, but and that and that's been the, some of the criticism recently is that they're the Fed is being too transparent and mm-hmm. trying to communicate what they're trying to do. Um, I think you know, depending on you know what day of the week it is, you get people saying the Fed needs to be much more transparent or less. Um, but the reality is, anytime anyone, any of the Fed governors um, speaks, obviously, especially Chairman Jerome Powell. It, mm-hmm. ha- it has a major effect of moving markets. To your point, yeah. Matt, people are just are, are trying to parse every single word and read it between the lines and go through the beige book and, and read, you know, read the minutes. And, yeah. and but in a lot of this is intentional is they're, they're trying to like, you know, throw water on, you know, the stock market or the employment mm-hmm. market. Um, but I, they don't, I, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. They, they always that. try to, it's almost like they want to throw water on things or at least maintain a little bit of mystery he's a little bit coy about things like oh i know i'm not gonna tell you uh but you know yeah, justifiably so because yeah because he knows uh but so what he specifically said i think that sent everything in motion um was on tuesday it, he started saying and he kind of finished saying it the next day um on tuesday he said to the senate uh the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected which six which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated Okay, and then on Wednesday, he said, if, and I stress that no decision has been made on this, if the totality were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we will be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. So he tries to, you know, uh, tries to lessen or dampen his hawkish uh, comments from Tuesday. But the point is still uh, is still pretty strong. But to me, his comments on Wednesday really didn't do much. We're six days out from the, the next CPI print, but the last one did not single signal rampant inflation. However, the PCE, um, which is the personal consumer expenditure numbers, um, they and they were released on February 24th, so a little old, but they're more worrying than the actual CPI numbers. And they have um they have inflation, PCE inflation going up 0.6% in January compared to just 0.3% the month before. I think that. One of these things that, you know, you can interpret things however you want, but the sign and the data that is coming in, and um, you may have mentioned the jobs numbers too from ADP, uh, the, those numbers are not, uh, they're not good signs. And we could be headed easily, I think, for a, for a 0.5% rate hike. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly they wanted to put that on the table to communicate to markets of like, hey, we're, we're not done yet. And we're not, we're not going to be done I mean, think about that. Who who are the people? Who are the people who are really saying like they need to bring interest rates down or stop doing it? It's like people in the stock market. Mm-hmm. It's like it's the inve- it's the investor class that's yeah. like saying this. Like we're like we want our deals to pencil, so I need you to bring interest rates down. They're looking at it and saying, yeah, but our you know unemployment rate is in you know sub three. You know, in many markets it's two. It, it's in some Indi- Indiana markets it's it's under two percent. Like, so why, what, what, why? And we have inflation. We have caught, people are spending more money on eggs, mm-hmm. on what, what, whatever. And well, and that, what, and why, I, why, why would I, why would I lower interest rates for who? Yeah. Because people's experience with inflation is a lot sharper and more painful 
than I think in, in general than um, the average person's experience with interest rates. They're not following them. They they engage with them maybe when they're buying a home or a car or something Unless like that. Unless they're buying a home or or a car, or a car and it's even mm-hmm. probably less on a car. It, yeah. It's really when you're buying a home. Um, but other than that, and and then and a lot of homeowners, you know, if we had, if we were like Europe or other places in the world, and most single family homes are financed with a floating rate product, we we have that conversation, mm. but they're yeah. not. Everyone, everyone pretty much uses some sort of fixed rate financing, thirty or fifteen year fix, because obviously what happened, great financial crisis, um, and and again, like just we're talking about multifamily, everyone that did is in a good spot. No one's underwater. No one's worried because they're financed for fifteen or thirty years. You know, they're kind of they're kind of stuck. Who is going to go trade out their three percent mortgage for a six percent right now? Yeah. Now, another thing that I was thinking about in in terms of you know what's the attitude and what are the effects on the on the economy, but I, I would kind of argue that the housing market and the apartment market specifically it hasn't completely reacted to the increasing interest rates that began last year. Now calculations are changing, and and I think one another worrying thing is is in some of Hal's comments he also talked about. You know, maybe even revising the terminal rate that they're going for up. So it's not just yeah. maybe we're getting one another 0.5 increase, but maybe we're going to go higher above five percent um, than was it than was previously anticipated. That, so that's I mean, almost scarier. Um, just to kind of look forward to that. Yeah, because most people didn't have that priced in. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And and you made another good point, Matt. Is that you know we're talking about um, you previously we were just talking about in the last segment talking about you know okay well the numerator denominator just like the your valuation calculation values are down but those are all just you know paper valuations and the value you know it you can take a valuation at any point in time if you want whether that's yourself doing it or you're actually getting an official appraisal Mm -hmm. Um, but at the end of the day the true value um it's not until you you mark to market you actually have a transaction and the only transactions yeah. that are happening, at least today, are people who are getting the price they want. You know, it's a 1031 exchange buyer or someone who has a lower return threshold that still is out there buying. And there are still folks out there that are buying at, you know, five caps and sub, sub five caps. That number is dwindling by the day, but there are still un- enough of those out there that the few transactions that are taking place, albeit higher cap rates than they were a year or two, two years ago. But, um, you know, some folks are still getting decent prices um, because people have, you know, just have to place capital. Those are the only deals that are really getting done unless it's it's an assumption. Um, But like if no, if the deals don't trade, that you're not really setting a market if the deal, if if the transactions actually aren't actually occurring. I mean, you can, we can have conversations all day long um, on a given day, you know, just, I mean, I remember when the pandemic was starting. And the 10 year dropped below 1%. And in my mind, I knew that cap rates should then be coming down. And I knew that I'm like, really, on paper, the value of all of our assets just shot up or will shoot up. Well, you know, can't have our cake and eat it too. The opposite also applies. But at the same time, you know, when the 10 year fell below 1%, it's not like I was, you know, calling the bank and saying, you know, could we have. Could have, we could have done this, I guess, in the form of refinance, but like until a transaction, maybe like a refinance takes place, it's not real. It's just numbers on a piece of paper, yeah. you know, on a calculator. It's not, it's not a real value. So, um, yeah. And, and, and kind of tangentially related, it, something that I, I wrote in the, in the newsletter is these things that have an effect on the buying and selling of apartment properties, they're not as like 
the straits are not as dire <laughs> when it comes to rentals and like the fundamentals of multifamily properties specifically. Um, I think that the, that the problem at least has been characterized in, in all the reports that I've been reading is really a problem about getting financing. It's not, we're not looking forward and, and, and getting scared about renters not showing up. I think that, and we'll see in different, in a couple of reports um, in this, in the show that, uh, that the housing demand's still there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, what it means for multifamily, I think is that I would argue that multifamily has more cushions to wait out periods where apartment prices go down. Like, like you mentioned, but with these signals from the Fed that interest rates could get higher, that timeline, like like we kind of discussed earlier, timeline gets longer and longer, and and it's going to be really interesting um, to see when enough deals get made that really start to characterize the market. And you said, you know, the deals that are getting made are the ones where the the sellers are finding their price, and and it may be or creative fin- or creative financing. I mean, that's yeah. Like- that's the only way to get like an actual deal done or someone's like, yeah, I'll pay a stupid price because, you know, looking at what my tax bill would be, if I can defer it, I can take a lower return and still come out ahead. There's probably some mistakes being made because of that also people buying something Mm -hmm. they probably shouldn't being like, I got to place the money and I want to save a million dollars that I'm going to pay taxes on. But then if it, um, you know, and and I think, well, and and I may be putting words on that, but the implication there is that those deals do not kind of characterize the market where we're at right now. And, and, uh, maybe we need a little bit more price discovery where it, it more deals hitting the market to really say, actually the typical person looking to sell is. Yeah. This and, and they're just not, I mean, there are deals that are hitting the market. People are floating stuff around there. They're seeing, you know, if there's people, there are people are fishing for yeah. buyers, um, but few and far and some deals are closing. Um, deals have, I mean, we bought a deal a couple of weeks ago. There's an assumption. Um, but uh, it it's they're few and far between. Um, Matt, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, and I just want to characterize this whole when I when I'm talking about you know potential opportunities and and this you know the idea that the apartment prices might be going down, property prices. I I get excited about it as a buying opportunity because I believe in the fundamentals of the apartment market and oh, supply yeah. is coming along that that is going to change things. But it's not in every market. There still are opportunities, and um, it's something that otherwise it would be a real tragedy. If, if everything was going up, but really there are some, there are some bones and some real, a, a good, uh, good yeah, fundamentals. as depressed as I can get of being like, oh, I can't, you know, it's just not the time right now. It doesn't make sense. And nothing pencils, you know, because we're like using more conservative assumptions and our return thresholds have gone up it, while it's even, so it's even harder to hit. Then like you, you keep like going around, you round the bend and it's like, Hey, this could be a very interesting buying opportunity when the market gets to where we are. Yeah. It's it just, it's just not there yet. And we're mm-hmm. just, Again, from a great capital's perspective, you know, we're, we're staying, we're sticking to our kind of fundamentals, the way we view the world and the economy and the market. And we know what we believe is a fair value to get returns that justify the risk is we're looking at, we're looking at, we're approaching it from a um, risk management perspective, capital preservation perspective, mm-hmm. and, and we're just not getting close right now, but we think the yeah. market is going to get to a point and we're staying like active and active, having active conversations, we're going to be in the right position to take advantage of the opportunities when they present themselves. So I get very excited about like the potential opportunity coming down yeah. the hike, but then, then you just keep going, but it's not here yet. It's not here yeah, yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep your eyes open. I think that's- We're a, digging trenches is what we're yeah, doing right now. That's good. <laughs> we're just, we're digging, digging trenches. Um, keep moving forward. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So I want to touch on this ADP number. Yeah. We're talking about macro stuff. We went back to multifamily, Matt. Um, and, and this is 
this is good not only talking about you know where monetary policy is headed um but it's also like how's the general economy doing you know if people will mm-hmm. have jobs people are should be making some money and people should be able to pay rent um which is all good um now good news is you know good news for people who love bad news again we're you know same modest mouse album every week um we had a 242 um freaking jobs um that's so great it's bad man yeah that's I, not good it's great it's not good it's great well it, it it certainly puts the lie to the idea that that uh tech layoffs are characterizing the market which no one really i mean said but you, you hear a lot and mark zuckerberg told facebook meta employees that this is the like the year of efficiency or something and that's how he fired people um and and so you know there's a lot a lot of tech companies are, are firing people and uh it's not a lot of people are hiring a lot more people are hiring. yeah it seems like now so um nella richardson chief economist made dp you'll see her on the fancy fine um, finance shows um just a quote from her there's a trade-off in the labor market right now we're seeing robust hiring which is good for the economy and workers but pay growth remains quite elevated people are making Wait. too much money oh that seems like people good things. i know i know there's a but, <laughs> yeah. but, it's actually, but again <laughs> The modest slowdown in pay increase on its own is unlikely to drive down inflation rapidly in the near term. Even the, I mean, like they know, like they're putting their employment report, but they're like, yeah, we know, great employment numbers, not good for inflation. Yeah. Um, not good for the Federal Reserve trying to look for, you know, you know, even if they wanted to bring down interest rates to appease the the investor classes, as we were talking about, like they at least need the like data points to sort of justify it. And how mm-hmm. can they, when they're like, People still keep getting hired. They're making more money. Yeah, we're trying to stop it. Um, and how do we let? How do we like take our foot off the brake when you know we're sliding down? Uh, yeah, or up, or whatever Jeff direction you want to describe it as. And some of the discussion of this uh, of these numbers have has touched on how wage growth specifically is a it it could really have an impact on inflation, and it could be one of the bigger you know the bigger sectors if it. If it ticks up, um, because maybe we're going to get over eggs and, and other and other things. But but that's this wage wage price spiral is uh, it's a scary prospect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true. Um, just looking into some more of the details of this employment report. I mean, we there was some were some losses in small businesses. Um, I mean, only kind of what, 61,000 total. Um, but the mid size and large um, businesses, they added quite a bit. Um, breaking yeah. it down by industry. I mean, it was a gain in every industry except for construction and professional and business services. Um, now they don't break out. I believe like tech, I guess information is it. Um, uh, I, 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 I guess, um, just like, you know, obviously the tech sector hasn't been doing well, but I mean, construction, I mean, that, that was interesting to me. I, I assume that's in relation to single family home construction totally. slowing down. Yeah, totally makes sense. That it definitely makes sense, but you know, again, it, while that is, would typically be a bad sign for the economy, every other freaking industry sector is up besides professional and business services. Again, um, that I'm not as concerned about these folks. Maybe I should be. I don't. Are we in that category, Matt? Where are we? Yeah. Are we? No, no. We're financial activities. We gain. Uh, right, I don't know real estate. All right, good. We're that, also that we're, we're in a little bit of everything. We're a little, a little bit, bit of construction. I'm, I I have a different. I have like a, a news report here that talks about pay. I don't know. Is there a 
Is there anything about pay in that report? Because what what I have just saying that wages increase, but I don't think they specifically said what the average what I is on this little news release I have up. It has that job stayers their median change median change in annual pay was seven point two percent. Job changers had fourteen point three percent median change in annual pay. The even the stayer you know pay growth for job stayers at seven point two percent year over year. That's pretty big. It's it's not it, it's not right at inflation, but I mean it's pretty dang close. Yeah, yeah. Even though the pay growth actually this this is the slowest annualized pay pace of gains in twelve months. Um, so I, I kept hearing headlines that that wage growth wasn't keeping place, and maybe it's still not keeping place with inflation, but it is. Uh, it's not lagging by too much. It's it's in the running. <laughs> maybe not yeah. maybe not at an even pace, but but it's closer than I thought. And, and, I, and I think there's going to be some inherent lag in that of not everyone asks for raises or gets raises at the same time. And, and I think once it becomes the, the norm, it, I think it'll easily could um, continue to pick back up. Um, un, un, unless, again, the and I think the Fed's seeing that. Another reason why they say they can't take their foot off the brake, because the only thing that's going to really stop that is like people stop hiring people, stop hiring new people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this, again, it's like a psychological thing. If they create that environment of expectation of higher wages, then it could really kick kick off this animal spirit of inflation <laughs> that you can't yeah. control or explain. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's partially the baby boomers fault, Matt. It's our okay. dads. Um, yeah. They all retired. Or your dad's not retired. No, but no, he's, no. yeah. And you got an announcement or... No, 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 I don't think so. No, not yet. <laughs> but, you know, but, it, you know, it's people are clocking, you know, exiting the workforce or just, you know, the baby boomers are large group, a lot of, a lot of, a yeah. lot of them. There's a lot of them. And, you know, they're retiring. And then so, you know, the Gen Xers and millennials are all getting moved up and, and there's just this big gap. There's not that many Gen Xers and the millennials are moving out of their entry level positions into yeah. middle management or whatever. Um, and, uh, somebody's got to still like, you know, work in the mail room and flip the burgers and just, but no one, it's, those jobs are not inspiring. And yeah. I think, you know, we're going to continue to see automation, um, just flood through the economy, uh, whether that's robots or AI or whoever you want, you want to parse it, but like, it's not going to be a, like a choice. It's going to be like, we don't have anybody to do this. Yeah. Like there's no, like, it's not like you can't find a novel. Like there's no, no one wants to do this. How, how do we, yeah, that is really, yeah, we are. It does seem, especially just look, thinking about that transition from the baby boomers into, you know, really, uh, millennials, it's going to, it's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect the housing market. Um, and, and it already has affected the multifamily market. Yeah. Although, um, a little differently than maybe some were expecting. Yeah. Let's keep talking about supply, Matt. CBRE. Yes. Looming multifamily oversupply likely will be short-lived. Um, I, yeah. I, I tend to agree. They've got some good data here, Matt. Um, so just to kind of like supplement it, last week we discussed the 400-some apartments expected to be completed in 2023. We were basically looking at some real-page data um, on the roughly 971,000 apartments under construction. And, and we were arguing that yeah, it'll probably be closer to 400,000 units completed than it would be, maybe, probably not 500,000 completed in 2023. 
just because there's like a construction backlog, um, things like labor shortages, materials costs, it just like that long jam itself is probably making each building project that much longer and more expensive, all things considered. Um, so that's why we thought, you know, maybe that our 400 was a lower end. This week, CPRE forecast that delivery of a near record 716 new family housing, new multifamily housing units over the next two years will push the sector's overall vacancy rate above equilibrium from 4.6 to a peak of 5.2% vacancy by year end. Firstly, 716 over two years, that's like 300 and 400,000 is bigger than this, what, 358,000. Um, so this near record number is on our low end. Our lower end estimate, some people were saying 500,000, 400,000 is still a lot. There's yeah. still a lot of supply coming. It could have been bigger, but uh, but it's not, you know, it, it's still near record. Um, my point is that we're going to see a lot of them, They're, but they are being revised down. And there's only so much revising down you could do with a number as big as 971 apartments under apartment units under construction. But sooner or later, these projects, like most of the projects, maybe some of the projects, are they're going to be completed. I, I don't think they're going to be spread across every city evenly in the United States. And last Definitely week, we talked, about, yeah. we talked about places like Phoenix, Austin, Dallas, Atlanta. They're going to get more apartment supply than others. And for investors looking to make a multifamily acquisition in 2023, finding a market or really even a sub-market that's not going to be flooded with new supply is going to be top of mind much more than it was in the past few years. That, that is really, and that's something that um, that was mentioned by uh, Igor Popov in a recent um, in a recent Gray Report video, something and, and really great, and you should check it out. I'm going to put the link in the show description. But he mentioned that supply is is a real big factor this year. Last year, yeah, it was, and supply is always a factor, but I think it's a bigger factor this year than it has been in the previous three. And again, especially since we're, you know, as we've mentioned, um, some of the headwinds in the market, like right now, the supply mm -hmm. on when demand is low. Now, demand, yeah. demand, you know, we're seeing signs demand is picking back up. But let's say it stays um, somewhat suppressed. Um, we could, if you all of a sudden have demand low and supply high. Yeah. Again, like we're talking, you know, pretty basic you know this yeah we're already in this sensitive one one so really really crucial to make that decision of, and to really get a good view of where apartment supply is going in the in the markets that you're studying so so the cbre report and and i found other information in other places for for population projections um but basically you know this oversupply was based on projections of of the population or of, of factors that uh, that didn't hold true to the reality. Sometimes people think that the population places is going to grow and it doesn't. Sometimes it grows places where you don't think. And it's not an exact science. And my point in all this is that we're going to see a lot of completions and we, and this, uh, it is, it's not that builders are making blind guesses, but if you're building an, a, an apartment building, there's a risk that that your projections are going to be a little off and yeah, no based on, yeah, you're making assumptions based on data that you're taking as fact but it yeah. may not be or projections there are other assumptions um yeah and matt that no i think that's a that's a really good point and, and i've seen just these are these are anecdotes but you know um I, i've seen markets where i'm like no i know bloomington is an example of where like if you look at its population growth it is technically as negative population growth um 
But the idea that the town of Bloomington has shrunk over the last five years is very hard yeah. to square with, like, it, with the reality of, of being familiar with with that market. And then when you look at um, COVID, you know, we had a census that took place during the pandemic, and of mm-hmm. uh, how how high quality do we think that was when we didn't even have people going around getting people to sign up, and just patient rates were low. And the last anecdote is, I mean, I just checked CoStar, Indianapolis's population growth rate on CoStar. And previously, it had projected 1% population growth over the next, um, you know, basically just under a percent of population growth annually for Indianapolis. You know, now we're like in the, just like just below two. Um, I yeah. mean, like it's like, or, you know, one, maybe like one and a half or so, but, but a, a relatively substantial move up, um, you mm-hmm. know. Like six point seven over the next five years versus like you know four point seven or something. Um, and when, you, and when you're looking at apartment supply, really digging down to the smallest, the smallest area possible, the smallest relevant area is is important because a big city may not have may have shrink maybe shrinking, but that a suburb in that city could be growing incredibly. You can drill in. You can go to the apartment list uh, rent report every month. And you'll you can scroll down and find how the the red growth color for uh for a market is light blue, but then it's really dark bright red um, for some of the submarkets. Yeah. So it really it really matters to look you know and, and that's where supply is going to be relevant too because uh, a new apartment getting built right across town that, that may not have a, a whole big effect on one that's going to be built right yeah. in you know right. Well, next door. I, I think. The bottom line is that you never want to look at, you know, one data point to mm-hmm. make a decision yeah. off of and, you know, from, or just from, from one source. And there's so many different factors that can, um, determine the outcome of an investment and, you know, the, you know, um, employment growth and population growth, like those are, are very important, but just, but how that, re- those affect demand in the future, but how supply and affordability, what the incomes are. I mean, there's some areas like the, again, you know, I'm using East side of Indianapolis as an example because it's where we're from. That's where I have a lot of familiarity with East side of Indianapolis, some of the strongest rank growth in the nation right now, year over year, it's, we're still over 10%, um, more, more than Indianapolis uh, as a whole over, I think it's like 10.8% according to CoStar right now, mm-hmm. East side of Indianapolis, Indianapolis submarket. The reason for that is because there's been basically no supply that's come online the last 10 or 15 years, no new supply, um, a lot of decent amount of job growth. The problem, the reason why there hasn't been any new supplies, the incomes aren't high enough. It's one of the lower, in, it's the submarket with some of the lowest incomes in Indianapolis. People with low incomes still need a place to live, however. Um, so yep. you've had no supply, people moving in, jobs moving in. Jobs are actually paying more money, but it's not enough to move the median income. And that me- those median income statistics are delayed and they're lagging. Um, so when developers decide, oh, there are people making enough money to live here, well, they're not getting those signals to start their development process. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking years out until it actually mm-hmm. happens. You have to have, um, you know, we've invested in that side of town where a lot of people wouldn't um, because for a variety of reasons, um, we've just been very surgical on that side of town. And not that there haven't been some challenges because it's, you know, lower income areas, um, but we're buying trying to buy high quality in those areas and areas where there's a lot of job growth. So we have a higher quality resident coming in. Um, but yeah, I'm, that's a really perfect, that's a perfect example of, you know, this knowledge is information is not going to be generated 
and and available to to builders unless you really have have boots on the ground you can't be everywhere and there isn't a builder that has their ear to every single market um and so there's again there's going to be opportunities that, that happen not because the builders are inaccurate it's just that information it takes a, a little bit of time to be generated analyzed and reported on exactly exactly matt okay well so matt let's par this data with some of the realtor.com information yes. that's also coming out because again you can't just look at one source you know cbre you know they're trying to sell us on some apartments and some death um which is all good i trust what they're saying and giving to us realtor.com coming at it from a little bit of a different angle um as you can imagine more focused on the single family home um space but you know they're pretty involved in housing at yeah. all so what's going on with this man i think i've included this report even though you know, it's a little bit of similar uh, supply supply or anything but it is a well-deserved reminder that the housing affordability crisis that crisis that we used to talk about so much last year and year before um, because there were not enough homes in the united states that didn't magically go away um yes interest rates have led to falling home values and it may maybe you know seems like the problem became less of a problem but increasing interest rates didn't magically create more homes just messed with messed with the prices for housing property they're they're physically it did create some new homes well, well, oh, what did? Well, just because people were like, "I'm gonna buy, I'm gonna build," a, and the builders were building spec, spec the development only for so long. But sorry, yeah. I made a mess you up. Oh no, no, the lower in lower interest rates. Oh, kind yeah, of encouraged yeah. development, but yeah. raising interest rates, all it did was lower the price of of uh, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. it created that lower price situation, and it hasn't really. Um, it, and so, people are there's less headlines about the cost of housing, but. My point is, is that the huge, uh, the huge size of the housing affordability crisis is such that it hasn't go, gone away, and it may be a little bit bigger than the short-term economic issues of you know of just 2023 alone. Uh, the the big pullout gap with all the good juicy information is uh, here. Here's a quote. It says the gap between single-family home constructions and household formations grew to 6.5 million homes between 2012 and 2022. However, including multifamily home constructions reduces this gap to actually only 2.3 million homes. But multifamily home construction picked up in 2022 and to reach 35.1% of all housing starts by the end of the year, a level not seen since 2015. Um, usually multifamily homes were about 31.8, I think, percent of all uh, of all housing starts. But now it's a, a few percentage points up. Uh, still not enough starts. And and I'm going to scroll down on my notes here. So basically, we, we're building a lot. We built a lot yes. the last two, call it two or three years. Mm -hmm. Not enough to dig ourselves out of the hole from the last decade. And now we're slowing down development again. And, you know, maybe yeah. we got like a third out of the hole. But yeah. we stopped digging. This is and this is how much we need to dig out. They say that if the total of housing starts increased by fifty percent from the twenty twenty two rate to to get that twenty two point three million housing starts per year, then the which would involve a pace of construction on par with what we saw in the early nineteen seventies, um, in some of the peak months for building in the mid two thousands. Then, if we had that fifty percent increase, it would take between two and three years to close that that gap, and uh. That's a huge amount. That's that is more than double the you know we were talking about CBRE their near record level of you know maybe it's three fifty eight uh, thousand deliveries a year. The rough number of this 
is we need, instead of 358,000, we need 731,000 multifamily starts a year. It's a little bit of an apple or an oranges comparison because CBRE was measuring completions, but still, that is, it, we we cannot build that many apartments. We're not, it's not in the pipeline at the very least. And again, like I think the sheer size of this is uh, illustrates that it's a bigger issue than I think even the interest rates. Yeah. And, and, you know, people, I think they're seeing, you know, they're going to downtown Austin or Denver or, or wherever, and they're seeing like, you know, cranes still towering the sky and they're like, there's so many apartments. We're so oversupplied, but it's like, yeah, we're oversupplied in like those two Mar- those several markets yeah for the next I, like year or so but everywhere yeah. everywhere else and again that that's why it, it's such you know the um, the national numbers are Im- important but like if you're making any decision you have to have because you have to have a base point you have to have a reference yeah yeah um, that's but at, very good but at the but at the end of the day like it, it's uh, you if you don't know not only your state county city town you know, township, neighborhood, like you gotta, it's so dependent. It's yeah. such a, you know, local immediate proximity game. And you have to have, again, you have to have understanding of both, but um, it's stressed the importance of, you know, having those connections and, and having boots on the ground and knowing what you're investing in and where you're investing mm-hmm. and, and not making assumptions of, you know, the, the, the one that it's easy to fall into, and I've fallen this, especially kind of years ago, if you go to a city you're not familiar with, and you say like, oh, this is like this, like, you know, it, this is like this suburb of my town. Like, this is the caramel of, mm-hmm. of this city. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it is, but maybe it's like not, is it exactly? Like, yeah. and, that, and that is a I helpful tool. Exact same thoughts, yeah. It's like stereotyping. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, there's, there's usually some truth to that. And, and it might mm-hmm. be kind of helpful. But you can also make some big mistakes. Yeah, each place you know. is is has its own unique pressures and its own unique sub- supply line. Um, but I do think that knowing the national national supply numbers impact at the very least the idea of you know renters moving to more affordable markets. True. If your if your rent's above average or something, and that's something that's increasingly happening, especially in, their reason is largely affordability. Um, so you could be you could be headed to a good place if you're if your average rent in the market you've chosen is underneath uh underneath the average for yeah niche. yeah okay um we've talked about supply a lot of coming online not enough matt let's move in so l- let's let's go a little bit bigger picture you know let's uh you know you and i we can talk about investing all day long multifamily <laughs> real estate let's talk about some really really ultra high net worth family office folks um are thinking camden research put out the ultra high net worth private equity investing report for 2023 and i participated in this survey and so i got a little bit i, I don't know how early access or if, if they threw out the same day anyway you're, you're one of the first to know about it if you have not seen it yet and um matt before we get into the meat potatoes yeah. we're commenting on their use of what we believe is a bunch of ai generated um, images such as is my 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 background um <laughs> good um dolly 2.0 whatever ai prompt all kinds of fun multifamily ai renderings um but let, let's i just again we're this is like uh, not to um i still think digress but uh i think the, that the page 89 these images are i don't believe in re- based in reality i i think that i think 
I think they are. That's what I. This. I think they, they this is a stock. Bang. This is a stock. <laughs> this is a stock image. This fifteen. This is a stock image. I hope. Why would anyone yeah, use? This? I don't know. I'm, I'm what, what, I'm what, what is this? Crack it down. What, what is this? What oh, is that's that? A, that's a, it's a sculpture. It's a gateway. Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. 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 What I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I. That well, the, well that last that last one I'll give that one to you. But I think everything else, I hope it's real. I like to think it's real, and it's, um, I think it's a great, good, good use of a of AI. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I think these are the first like fifteen that they came up with. Um, there could be some better ones. Anyway, let's get into the report, Matt. Um, uh, they've been putting this out for a while since 1987. Um, Camden has been. They provide unrivaled proprietary intelligence directly from the world's wealthiest families to facilitate peer-to-peer learning. They they host like events and, and things like that. Um, but Matt, what, was, what were some of your takeaways? Because there's a lot of yeah, uh, so a lot, lot, there's a lot, lot of data. There's a lot of there's a lot of yeah concepts that there are. The other like hundred pages, and it wasn't you know. The, so they drill into a lot of a lot of media issues, um, and and they, and they I don't know how long it took took you to complete the survey but sir certainly seems like they asked more it, it actually took longer than i than i would have uh, preferred it actually did take <laughs> well, it, a while because they got they must have gotten uh they yeah they got a lot of value out of it um yeah they have 10 10 real main points and i kind of combined them a little and i'll fl- and i'll run through yeah just fly, yeah so um their main points is uh so firstly that investment in private equity uh is it that's like a it's a big it's a big commonality for all the survey respondents. 84% are invested in private equity. Um, another issue that they point out is uh, their biggest challenges, their two biggest challenges were lack of liquidity lack of liquidity and risk of capital loss. You talked about the importance of a, you know preservation of principle and the problems that people are running into. Well, yeah, that seems like a lot more people are worrying about that right now. Um, 20% of wealth, they say, is allocated to private equity, which is expected to expand. Um, and then on balance, the, uh, the average investor is invested in 13 direct deals and seven fund investments. Um, nine out of 10 are actually investing in funds, which are primarily bound through family office networks. Um, they also note that investors are looking for reputation and performance when they're evaluating a fund. And then when they're looking for direct deals, they seek out relationships with GPs that have an eye for the quality and, man- and and they also have an eye for the quality of the management and founding team when they're looking for uh, direct deals. Private equity returns are measured at 24% IRR on average, and um, only 14% of these ultra high net worth individuals are using online investment platforms for their investments. Although, as they as they state, um, they're amenable to the idea; they just don't use it. I would say um, that's pr- probably generous. If they don't use it, then they. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know. They're still getting used to it. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a proliferation of these investment management platforms over the last couple of years where it was a nice to have um, two years ago, um, but not a net, uh, requirement. A lot of groups are starting to um, use them, but not everybody. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, if you don't have one, you're kind of like, why Why? Why don't, why don't? Um, yeah, that I, I completely agree. I think it's like, just the way that we use our investment platform it's it's like there are some things that like we can't do unless we do it through the platform i mean well, we could do it but it would be it would make a lot more work and it's and well, it would be feel like a lot of going backwards i, I think it's making the institute 
institutionalization um, and professionalization, I would say, of uh, these types of yeah. managing these types of investments, um, a little bit, a little bit more consistent. I'd mm-hmm. say, I mean, because you know, going back, I mean, you've, you've had groups that have been very professional reporting um, for for decades, um, but the but the like the middle market and old school syndication country club, you know, model, yeah, um, you know, especially you know, called pre twenty twelve or whatever. Um, even call it pre 2015, I don't know, um, was, you know, you, you, you send them your money, um, quarterly, maybe quarterly distributions, maybe quarterly reports, you know, they're not necessarily coming in on time. You're, you're getting a written, you're getting mail, something mailed to you. Maybe you're getting your check mailed to you. And it's sometimes a report, like sometimes there is no report. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. just a check. Sometimes it's a check with a statement of what that check is related to. Sometimes it's a check without a statement. Um, maybe with a quick summary of what's going on or a combination. And there are still groups out, a lot of groups out there that still do that. And some are yeah. really good and that's, and that's okay. And their investors know what to expect, but um, that's what I got. Not the, the standard anymore. I, well, but I still got the fee and, and cause we've been kind of swimming in, in the, uh, in this investment platform <laughs> yeah. uh, waters of that, you know, we switched our, we switched ours and we kind of gotten used to what it can and can't do. Um, but I think that I was actually a little bit surprised by the amount of people that still aren't aren't using it and 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 by and how like there's a lot of people that are still using the old ways and they're still making money yeah. off of it. Well, I, I think yeah, no, and, and again, if if someone's been around for decades, you know, people will put up with it because you know their their proof is in their returns. Mm-hmm. But if if you're someone who's evaluating, if you're evaluating a new sponsor, a new fund yeah. manager, or, or whatever. Um, and if you have experienced another sponsor's investment portal, you know, you're like, oh, this is how it should be. Yeah. And this is the standard. Like if I'm going to bring in a new sponsor, they better be utilizing technology like this. I want them yeah. to be on this side of the coin versus, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I'm every, I don't, yeah, you'll get it. It'll be a quarterly distribution. I don't know if it'll be on the quarter or, you know, you know, you'll, you'll hear from me and, um, that's what it seems like handwritten note and yeah you know, like couple, you know where the things are less less formal than than i expected um you know these are ultra high net worth individuals and i and i they're getting returns but it, it it's not exactly there's not set rules uh, <laughs> that say this is how many reports you have to give and this is you know yeah no i mean there, there's some things that are you know more common than not you know quarterly mm-hmm. stuff that you know but, but now it's like monthly if you're not again quarterly is fine but like you know monthly distributions and, you know, monthly updates are becoming more of the standard or at least like that's the direction that, that we've gone to, mm-hmm. um, partially because, um, people like getting paid monthly. Um, they like getting a distribution every single month. Um, and it's from a sponsor perspective, it's a great way to, you know, how many touches on your investors. Yeah. And it's a nice reminder, like, Hey, you were out there making things happen. And, you know, on a monthly basis, we're going to get a quick update, not, um, oh yeah, well, three months ago we had a problem and we've spent the last three months trying to fix it and we haven't, it's like it's three months have gone by. What, what's, mm-hmm. what, 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 what's going on? Um, yeah. Matt, just a couple of things I want to highlight and then I, and I want, then I want to totally. like hear from you on what you, what some of the takeaways that you, um, have. And there's, again, we'll probably keep pulling stuff out of this for the probably next couple of weeks, right? This is like a really long oh, yeah. piece. 
Um, just, a, just interesting to look at on um, private equity funds, IRR dispersion by vintage year. So what year was the fund launched and kind of what were those ranges of IRR? So it's like, what was the market like in that period? Now I will say, you know, the trend has been for the IRRs to increase over time. They're tracking 2004 through 2017. Reason I don't have any newer vintages because those are still mostly still active. Well, starting, you know, maybe at the, the widest year of volatility and the widest range, 2004. So these are deals, you know, again, funds launched in 2004, think, you know, a couple of years after when some of them may have been exiting or forced to exit was the great financial crisis. Um, so, you know, they IRRs, some below zero, you know, all the way up to a 40, um, 40 plus. Um, those, they kind of declined up through 2008 when then they popped up after 2009. Um, kind of anywhere from the low single digits all the way up into the mid twenties, and um, still, I mean, decent range because it's all different types of ac- asset classes, um, different risk profiles, different. Op- some are good, some are bad. Some people know they're doing, some people don't. Um, but it, that, again, it's that IRR has been creeping up every single year of the, of that range, and that those expectations um, of where in the, the last you know several years, you know, no one was losing money. There was no no one at zero. Yeah, it's all high single digits up to, you know, kind of mid thirties. They said 24%. So no longer 15, it's 24%. Now we're in a different period and it's the investor expectations relative to reality. And so that's where it's like, Hey, well, the market's only doing sick, you know, throwing off right now. If we do a deal and it's a low teens IRR, well, market's really expecting 24. So can you really do a 12 IRR deal? Maybe that's not really what the market is telling you is a good, good deal right now. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, a couple of different pieces of information here. And I was, I was totally measuring it against, um, interest rates and how, and how much effect those had. It seems like the increase, the steadily increasing IRR that is charted here, it, it, it begins, you know, roughly around the great financial crisis when, when interest rates were going down. But, um, I, it's, I mean, I got to draw like a pre trend. Yeah, yeah. Line going up kind of now it'll be interesting in the next couple of years, then the period after this. Um, but that's also more money flowing into private equity also. And so that's yeah. that, that would also be pushing up prices to a degree. Um, but definitely yeah, this is a, you know, higher highs. Um, it's just hard for me to, and higher it, lows. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine a co- you know, if we keep exp- if we keep growing at this rate, you know, it went from like ten average IRR that that to maybe 20 now and 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 that's you know in in what 13 years that they measured it in this in this graph so in 13 years the irs doubled and, and it can't keep doing that well i feel like the pendulum may swing the other way um yeah least for some um or, that's what i'm the thinking next too. year or near year or so or so um u.s private equity dry powder and assets under management um decent amount of dry powder in 2022 there's about 788 um, I assume billion, um, could it be a trillion, Matt? What does it say? Do you see the, um, I bet it's billion, but I'm not. Yeah. Not, well, it's not, yeah, it's not trillion. It's not trillion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was in like the low, yeah, low trillions, but not, 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 not hundred trillion. Um, so 788 billion of dry powder just sitting around, um, and assets under management quite a bit more. Now we are all of a sudden in the trillion dollar range. Yeah. Billion dollars or two and a half trillion, uh, um, of assets under management, um, but we've had a little bit of a decrease of dry powder from 21 to 2022. You think a lot yeah. of that was deployed? 
Well, I was, was playing twenty one. And that and that answers a question because I I remember we talked about that a lot in mm-hmm. twenty in twenty twenty and twenty twenty one. Um, about you know, there's it keeps building. Is it going to keep growing forever? And it does. You know, it does look like yeah. It was. So it's. I wonder if some of it was deployed. Some of it probably has come off the sideline or yeah. has been put to the sidelines. No longer committed. I guess mm-hmm. um, if if people can do that. Um, so, lot, lot, again, we're going to be going through this report over the next. Yeah, you know, one thing that I did notice. I, don't, I didn't put it in my notes. Was it taught? It does have a a graph that showed a real big takeoff for um for venture capital that was one of these uh one of these areas of investment that uh that outpaced a lot of other ones it turns like the value increase um and i wondered if that was due to interest rates but a lot of this report and this is change tech a little bit a lot of work was kind of dealing is dealing with a little bit i think it's marketing towards uh, people that want to sell to these investors. So it's telling them like- That's true. Yeah, it, it's for people who are servicing specifically like family offices and ultra yeah. worth. Yeah. And so they describe it and they describe the jobs of these respondents. 32% are in C-suite, 26% are founder, 24% family member, 2% portfolio member, 6% other. And then the types of investor, like kind of organizations or the, the um, uh, companies or whatever that they invest in. So 43% are single family offices from one independent family business that that is independent from the businesses that they run. And then 17% is a single family office that is embedded with the family business. 11% is a virtual family office, which is kind of tech driven with the majority of work outsourced. 11% is this commercial multiple family office um, that is owned by a third party. And then 7% is private multifamily office, which is owned by families themselves. And then 9% are individual investors. Um, they spend a little bit of time paying attention to this idea of this commercial multifamily office um, and and how for those people that are for, for each family involved in a multiple family office, they they average 256 asset under management and those offices average 22 families each. For the single family office, which is the biggest biggest category each family averages 725 million assets under management and they have a net wealth of 820 million dollars so these are pretty pretty ultra high net worth um what are they investing for long-term returns are by far ranked the highest but they also really 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 want to preserve their capital um especially now more than any um and then finally i just wanted to note the portfolio asset act a- allocation and it gets at what i kind of said about um venture capital but they have a section of what are these um what are these organizations investing in and it's led by private equities at 26 percent. it has real assets at 22 percent. private equity at, oh i'm sorry public equities are 26 private equity is 20 percent. cash is at 11 percent. traditional fixed income at 10 percent. private debt five hedge funds five and then crypto and other are each at one percent yeah so looking at Taking just a glance at this, they I mean it's pretty well diversified at least. Um they're holding eleven percent cash. Uh there there's a lot of different different kind of assets that these ultra high net worth people are. So, well, and I think just compared to you, your traditional um sixty forty portfolio that, you know, has come under a lot of criticism recently, um, especially last year, where, you know, not only bonds but stocks both had a horrible year. The sixty forty portfolio, not not good. Not good. And so what are these 
very high net worth individuals who have, you know, average net worth met of what, 800 some million, um, you know, they're not 60% into the stock market. Now they're looking at, again, as you said, preservation, they're not necessarily trying to grow, but they like to do a little bit of both. They like to grow and preserve mm -hmm. only 26% public equities at the stock market, only 10% traditional fixed income. So, you know, we, we're, we're only at 36%. Of, of what would typically make up your, of assets that would make up your traditional 60-40 portfolio. Now, 5% yeah. um, is private debt. So, you know, maybe 15% is in, are in bonds on average, you know, again, compared to 40%, you know, which is trying to be, you know, conservative enough. So only 15% that's really in fixed income between private debt and traditional fixed income. Mm -hmm. Real assets. So real estate, infrastructure, mining, stuff like that. Um, 22%. So only four percentage points, um, away from what they've got in the stock market. So think about that. What if you have yeah. in the stock market, you should have a, a similar amount or close to in real estate or real assets, hedge funds, only 5%. You know, you already went through this, Matt. Yeah. Actually yeah. 11% is, a, is, is a, that's a decent amount of cash. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I think, you know, it, it lines up with a little bit of there's different goals of these ultra high net worth investors and and a lot of them are long term like characterized by a longer term view than um than people that really want faster returns now and i think that it, exactly yeah when you're when you get to that level then you preservation of capital it, it becomes so important and you have a little bit maybe more flexibility to think in these in these long term ways rather than someone that's trying to really get that multiplier yeah one other, um, just some metrics, and again, we're, we're going to come back to this, um, as why would some, what are the challenges associated with people investing in mm -hmm. private equity? And again, this isn't just real estate. This is any type of private equity. Um, the biggest reason is not a major surprise, but it's something to think about. Um, and, and that's illiquidity. Um, here's a quote from a portfolio manager of a single family office in the, out of the UK. You are giving them, manager sponsor, your money for potentially 12 years. If you think you have made a bad choice, you can't just sell private investments like you can public ones. To make a significant long-term commitment is a real mental hurdle. You're, yeah. you're, you know, you're saying goodbye to your hard-earned capital for a long period of time. It's not easy. So there's a lot of other reasons why not to do it. Um, high risk of capital loss. Sure, there's there's risk in everything. Different, difficult to evaluate. Um, valuation levels, limit access to best performing funds. What's at the bottom though is, you know, is fees, you know, fees, macroeconomic concerns. It's really, you know, Ill the illiquidity is by far and large. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest reason would prevent someone from doing more private equity. They like the idea of it, but they're like, I just want to be able to get out. Um, and that's a structural feature too. That doesn't seem like it's <laughs> likely to change. It's not true. I mean, there's, there, there's all kinds of solutions that, I, that, um, sort of exist and it is a problem and people try to find some solutions but not necessarily um a ton of great solutions because again it, it's it's relatively opaque um there are marketplaces that sell secondary private positions but you know, sometimes it's not as easy as just selling it you have to have approvals to sell it often um and then how do you value that um security um well yeah it's, it's very difficult there's an illiquidity premium Yep. And, and we, we talked about all the benefits of long-term, but investors want to get in and get out. But I think that 
I'd like to think that ultra high net worth investors have that have a little bit larger of a vantage point, and they and they also have the ability to take on these multiple year investments without needing to take a look at that or use that money um, in the future. But but even that even being said, the fact that it's such a high you know that's high ranking for so definitively means that yeah nobody wants to part with their money and not be able to use it or touch it for that well rel- relative to you know um the public markets where you can get in and out of position in, in a couple yeah. minutes of if the tide turns as it always does i can i can redirect um mm-hmm. i can move in a different direction i can cut my losses and go to where i need to be and go to you know a more efficient place so so and that's an, an active investor um that that's a big it's a big concern and it's yeah. a disadvantage of um, private markets. Um, now they make up for it in, in, in many ways. And, and there are other people who actually like not having access to capital, having it tied up. I know some people who are like, you know what? I would trade that money. I would do, you know, I might, who knows? I might, you know, make, I'm not a professional investor. Yeah. I might make a rash decision. I'd rather have it tied up for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather have it, you know, in that asset. Um, well, and that's another point too is, I, I bet that the ultra high net worth individuals are cash rich and time poor, and they probably don't have as much time as less wealthy people that that can kind of check every day on their assets. Oh, yeah. Going well, they, they can hire a team to check for them. Yeah, that's true. That's what the family <laughs> office do. They got a whole team just oh. for you. Wow. Checking your stuff, <laughs> checking your accounts, checking your sites, checking your portals. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was gonna say. We got a good team here at Great Cap. Well now, well now, you know, and not to we do, but not not to get back to the portal conversation, man. I'm sorry, but well no. um but one one issue that I've seen, especially from like uh multifamily offices, family offices and like RIAs and such, is there's too many portals. They got every mm-hmm. single, you know, w- what was the number? Um what nine funds and a handful of direct deals was however many sponsors, each sponsor's got yeah. their own um yeah own that I I completely identify with that. That is, and every, when we set up that portal, that was one of the chief things that I was worried about. I was like the friction that it creates. I got one more password to memorize, one more thing that would, I would love uh, for the concept of standardization (laughs) to, uh, uh, you know, that, that you can, oh, I already have a, I already have an account on this portal. Then I can just go right in and use it. And even, and we had that portal, we had some of the same portal that other, that was, that other groups were using and it still was a little clunky but we kind of want our like we don't you know we don't want them to have our information either so it's like you need to have it closed off but the investors should have access obviously yeah um but then there's the other piece of where um wealth managers rias um they're trying to add much many more alternatives to their offerings they know that they can't just be offering again here's our 6040 portfolio i can offer Mm -hmm. you know public securities and your traditional fixed income products it's not sexy. We've seen, we've just saw the chart. That's only thirty six percent of whatever of the what the real wealthy people are investing in. And people want to feel like they're really wealthy, even if they're just moderately wealthy, high net worth, under ten yeah. million dollars or under twenty five million dollars or whatever. They still got a lot of money. They want to invest like the billionaire as well. And they you have to offer these more, um, you know, bespoke um, offerings. And a lot of that is private real estate offerings or crypto or private credit or um, other types of alternatives, infrastructure, whatever it may be. The challenge is they're all on these, um, their own platforms. They're on on the, you know, they they typically have a flag, whether it's 
um, you know, Morgan Stanley or, you know, it's Stiefel or yeah. it's, you know, whoever it is. And, you know, BNY Mellon, they've got, they've got their different platforms and they want their clients. They've got, so their client has their plat, you know, their, their portal. Mm-hmm. They're like, how do I get your portal to plug into my portal? Yeah. So I, like, I, they're like, I, they're like, the last thing I want to do is say, okay, client, you're, I'm going to have to give you another login. You're going to have to leave our ecosystem. Yeah. What I wish, and, and not, you know, you can have your own portal, call it what you want. I want, what if they had just like a generic, like a generic platform that we hooked up to that another uh, syndicator hooks up to? We're not seeing any, you know, no one, they can manage what each investor sees or not, but we can all have this uh, one login and we don't have to learn, you know, five different it's kinds just, of but, but, but it, and possibly if it's like view only, but it's like yeah. we're talking about financial, a lot of financial information. A lot of private information. We're talking about social security numbers, EINs, account numbers, bank account numbers, transferring tens of millions, billions of dollars, you know, through these platforms. Um, and so, like, what it all connects through and to, and yeah. different access, the more access points can add to the vulnerability to the system. I'm not an, I'm, you know, not an, that's not my area of expertise, but I, I, I I think, you know, having some sort of open AI or some sort of, at least if there was like a standard A, like, sorry, okay, API, API, yeah, API yeah, yeah. So, so that the different platforms could communicate and get plugged in. And that's what we've yep. been, we've, we've tried but to start working on. Internally. That's a good point. That almost kind of turned me around is, is the stakes are so high when you're with, talking about a whole lot of money and, uh, and some very sensitive documentation. Yeah. It needs to be treated yeah, like a, the vault. Yeah. Yeah. The vault. I mean, yeah, we've got extreme, you know, don't even want to talk about it on the internet. Anymore, <laughs> well, and then, you know, like things like, uh, making sure everyone's accredited and, and all these like different, different little things like, yeah, there's some real legal requirements that fall into. So <laughs> I can't, I can't talk about the vault. Okay. All right. So the, all right. You heard about the vault. I probably have, a, I probably said too much already. It's too much been said. <sighs> hey, if you want to be a member of the, uh, great capital investment platform you can you only need to go to great capital llc and click invest with us and you will have access greatcapitalllc.com great capital i'm sorry <laughs> not uh, or we should get the dot biz as well yeah well, well you could go to our and you click you can click uh invest with us i think and uh no matt they know they just gotta go to greatcapitallc.com okay now you are somewhat involved in in charge of this so i just but all i can I, but i can i can tell you what it i can tell you what it is okay thank um you. So you go to the website, man, mm-hmm. for credit investors only. You could, if you're already an investor, you can just you can log in right now. Um, beautiful website. Um, new investors sign up. If you're new, if you're new to Great Capital, you do need you need your name, you know, quick information, and then it, it's it's great. So you log in, you get your access. Beautiful. Oh, two factor. It's too well regarded, man. The firewalls up. Yeah. The firewalls yeah. up. Um, Security but, is important. But you know, I've already got my. It, it came through right away, so I'm not delayed at all. Um, you know, as much as the two factor is annoying when you're talking about this, it's it's important. Um, so, so you're in, you're locked in. You can check out offerings, what's going on. You can get your tax documents. You can get um, all kinds of different documents, reports, all kinds of stuff. Um, add stuff to your whatever. It's great. Um, but if you're like, I am not ready to give you my information. Um, and sign up for your portal. Well, you won't get to see what the portal looks like. I understand. One thing I highly recommend is still go on to the website, greatcapitalllc.com. I want you to sign up for something different. It's the newsletter. 
This is the Great Report newsletter is the number one real estate intelligence newsletter in the world, in, in the world that Matt and I are specifically aware of. So greatcapitalllc.com, click the free weekly newsletter on multifamily economy. You're going to see a picture of me. Just need your name, email. Don't put you, you don't have to put your phone number, but if you want us to call you, you can put your phone number in there. <laughs> like to get in touch. Um, and then you're going to get access to the, again, it's the number one intelligence, multifamily intelligence newsletter. You said on the planet, Matt? According to Matt Boss, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, We're, we don't have any assets on uh, on Mars yet. Yet. Yeah, exactly. That's got to wait to 2026. Yeah. Uh, big plans. But uh, this is every week, guys. This is not like a, when well, we've sent this one time. You get all these financing numbers of like, okay, I wanted what, not only what the 10 years doing is 3.97 today, but sort of a LIBOR. So for what's the difference, what's the spread between the 10 year and the two year, we could have had a whole section on that, Matt, you know, some examples of recent financing rates, Randy and Freddie, where are they at? Where's the S and P? What are the REITs doing? What's lumber at? What's Bitcoin at? What's crude oil at? Trying to give me all this macro information, but then all kinds of charts and graphs and all kinds of articles and data. Um, revolving in multifamily industry housing. Hey, I remember that report. <laughs> we just were talking about this. We were just talking about this. Um, right. So if you want to get this type of um, granular detail and data sent to your inbox every single Thursday at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, hey, do you, you read the last, do you want to read the last, uh, the title of the last article that was listed there? <laughs> I saw this article too. <laughs> Booze hungry fo fungus forces Jack Daniels to halt warehouse construction. <laughs> I I added booze hungry fungus, but like oh yeah, I want to read about the booze hungry fungus. The booze hungry, yeah, because this fungus it it's feeds whiskey off, fungus, yeah. right? Yeah, it yeah. feeds off the ethanol in the air, and uh, and it's making some neighborhoods have you know the homeowners and other businesses that they don't want the black stain because matt i come for the rent growth population growth information but i stayed for the whiskey fungus reform <laughs> that's so. good i'm glad i could that was an unexpected surprise i had the opportunity to just to mention that <laughs> we like to be opportunistic as is appropriate on the great port so guys hop on over great capital llc.com sign up on the investor portal if you're if you're serious you're a credit investor um you want to learn more about us but then you know the newsletter is just that's a that's a no-brainer um, the, the value proposition there, I think you'll agree is worth it. I mean, it doesn't cost anything. And, um, again, you want to participate in something that's the best in the world. That's, well, that's what that is. I'm um, at least that's, that, that's, that's, that's what we strive to do. And I think that Matt mm -hmm. gotten pretty close and, um, good, good work. Anything else on the report, Matt? Not yet. Well, the wait to lose happens. It's going to keep happening. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, I appreciate you watching this entire episode of The Gray Report. Um, make sure you're subscribed. Leave us a comment, um, good, bad, or the ugly. Um, we'll probably we'll go over some comments next week, Matt. How about that? So we've got some, yeah. got some good, we got some like guys, people going really into the weeds. Yeah, yeah. There was a like, couple, and I'll, 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 get, I'll drop some responses. Which I'm like, wow, these must be our people. That, like, yeah. They, like, yeah. Hey. They're like, they're, they're getting it. And, and sure. not that many people saying that we're, we're complete idiots. Oh, our audience is a smart audience. Yeah, no, but I'm saying I know they are smart. They're not. They're, they are not. They're not telling us we are wrong yet. Yeah, not I'm yet. surprised because I'm not sure if we're right. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm like, okay, we're not completely off base. Um, is like again, just the quality of comments are really, really. Um, yeah, high. we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to all. 
Matt, um, thanks again. Thank you. Great newsletter. We'll catch you all next week on the Great Report.